Right. Well, as we um, come to the, uh, the our sermon text, we'll be in Psalm 85. You can find our passage uh, beginning on page 493. It uh, actually begins and ends on page 493 in the Pew Bible. We'll be reading all 13 verses. I'll also be putting it up on the screen. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Lord, you were favorable uh, to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So if you are in conversation with someone, another uh, a Christian and of maybe perhaps another denomination or in the area, uh, and you use the word revival, uh, you're going to get a variety of responses to that word, some positive, some negative. Um, now, much of revival uh, thinking, especially in, our, in modern times, is informed by people's past experiences of tent revivals, which are essentially remnants of the second great awakening the hope is that by reproducing these events and using these various means uh, that god might come and bring a spiritual revival through conversion and recommitment to christ Um, it's essentially um, uh, modern revivals are effectively evangelistic preaching conferences uh, and, and, and prayer conferences as well. And that's not a knock against them. That's just what they are. There's preaching and prayer primarily at, at, at these revivals. Um, and the desire is noble, but we have to be careful because we can do ourselves a disservice if we read something about restoration or revival in, say, the Psalms, and we assume it's talking about this thing that we call revival. And, so, and we have to be careful not to interpret the Bible in light of our experiences or in light of our traditions, but rather we should interpret our traditions and our experiences in light of the Bible. Right? And so now um, I'm not going to go on you know, preaching about modern revival practices tonight, but what I want us to do is to consider what it means to pray for revival and then what it looks like when it happens. Because the church broadly and Christians individually need revival from time to time. 
this psalm is all about revival, although it, it speaks the, in terms of the word restoration. That is the word that is used most commonly. And the author here, though, is not praying for God to bless a scheduled event that's coming up. Right? He is praying for God to work his restoring grace in the midst of his people who are having an incredibly hard time. And so we begin first with what praying for restoration looks like. And then we will conclude which is with the second point, which is two things that happen when God answers our prayers for restoration. And so in verses 1 through 7, we consider the prayer for restoration from Psalm 85. And it begins in verses 1 through 3 with a remembrance of God's past mercy. It's striking how often the saints in the scriptures recall God's past mercies and likewise how quick they and we are to forget them. Uh, there is a present need in the, in the people of God to remember God's mercies. Things have gotten really bad for the people of God, for the psalmist here. We don't know what specifically. He doesn't tell us. But we do know that the author turns his mind back, not to better days. He turns his mind back to bad days, bad times, but to times where God was merciful to his rebellious people, where he had come to them and re revived them, restored them. So this is not nostalgia. This is not remembering him remembering back to the days when you could leave your your car and door, you know, whole house unlocked and not worry about it, right? He's not talking about that. In fact, he would be talking the exact opposite. You remember that time where you had to lock everything up and put electric fences on everything because everything was so terrible? That's what he's doing. But he says, but remember how God was so good to us then and what he did for us, right? It is, and so this is not a distorted remembrance to bring up positive feelings to give us safe, uh, a safe, you know, warm, fuzzy blanket. Uh, for him in the moment, it is a specific remembrance of God's mercy to his people in the past. He remembers back to a time uh, when God, uh, God, God was, was at work, but there was sin in the land. The iniquity of the people was great. The fortunes uh, of the people were dashed, and the wrath of God was in the land. That's what he's remembering back. Bad times. And you could go back and look at Israel's history, and you can see, you could drop... You could drop a point into a lot of times in their history where this fit the bill. But then God in his mercy showed undeserved kindness. He restored the people to their fortunes. I mean, how long did they make it out of Egypt before this kind of thing applied to them? Not long. He forgave their sin, the psalmist says. He covered it. He withdrew his wrath. He turned from his anger. Matthew Henry, he wrote on this, he said, Let not the presence of present difficulties drown the remembrance of God's past mercies. No, let not the presence of present difficulties drown the remembrance of God's past mercies. But why? We have to ask the question, why? What good is it to get the old photo book out from the past and stroll down memory lane? What, why, why are we doing that? Because... Our God is immutable. He is unchanging. And he is unchanging in his covenant purpose. 
God has in his goodness and love bound himself to his people, hence the use of his covenant name, that all caps Lord at the beginning of verse 1. And so the, so the psalmist is banking on the fact that just as the sun rises day after day, that God will show mercy to his people if they will repent. Because he is more consistent even than the sun. The question is not God's ability to forgive, but his willingness. Will he forgive? And time and time again, God shows that he is more than willing to be merciful to his people who will repent. But we must carefully note what one scholar pointed out here, that there is no revival until sin is forgiven and God's wrath is satisfied. And we will see, and we see that God has done this in verse 2. The question is, will he do it again? And this brings us to what we can call the heart of repentance in verses 4 through 7. First, see the clarity of the prayer to whom it is addressed. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of our salvation. The psalmist views God as the primary mover here. All of his questions involve God acting upon his people that conclude with a a plea for divine revelation of his mercy. The verb he uses in verse 4 is the same as in verse 2. It's that verb, restore. Literally, the word is repent. It's the Hebrew word shuvah. It means to repent. Literally, he prays, repent us again, O God. Now, this could be interpreted as asking God to turn from his wrath against his people or for men to turn from their rebellion. I rather think it's a little bit of both. Repent means to turn. He's praying, Lord, turn us again. We have gotten turned around and oh so very badly. We have mixed up evil for good, lies for truth, and it's like poison in our bones. Turn us again, Lord. Straighten us out. Turn us from sin, iniquity, and evil. And turn us, most importantly, to you. The heart of repentance is not a mere changing of action. It is the reconciliation of men with God. That is the goal of repentance. The goal of repentance is not behavior change. It is the change of the disposition of the heart from the idolatrous to the worshiper of God. It necessarily involves stopping certain things, sinful things, things that displease the Lord, uh, but all, and, and involves doing new things that do please the Lord. But the heart of repentance is not turning from one bad action to a good action. But it is always a forsaking of our sin as we turn our eyes of faith unto God. And from that glorious vision, we proceed to new obedience by the help and grace of the Spirit. That is the difference between glorious grace, uh, in, uh, grace-empowered obedience. There's a difference between that and just white-knuckled legalism. I'm going to stop doing the bad thing. I'm going to start doing the good thing. All right? We skip the step 
of the gospel in legalism. But, go, but gospel obedience comes through repentance. Matthew Henry actually very helpfully summarizes this whole section of the author's prayer into four parts of what we could call the prayer for restoration. First, he says it is a prayer of restoring, uh, sorry, of converting grace. It, the, the prayer here is not one for mild change, but of thorough renovation of the heart. Certainly, this includes those who, who thought themselves to be Christians uh, because they attend a church uh, or those who simply engage in bare religious activity but do not actually worship the Lord from their heart, which is seen by the unchecked pride and sin in their daily life, publicly and privately. This prayer is for God to bring men to an awareness of their misery and their need for mercy. But it is also a prayer for wayward believers who have been momentarily blinded by the desires of the flesh and the comforts of the world, by sin, that we would have our eyes open to the folly of our ways and that we would turn back to God. And so it is a prayer of converting grace, and we would say even awakening grace to wayward Christians. It is also a prayer for the removal of what Matthew Henry calls the tokens of God's displeasure. Uh, that is, the, the things that are causing the, the actual hardship in our life. That is, uh, that is the, and so now, and we always, always want to be careful here because not every affliction and hardship is due to a personal sin and rebellion. But some things are. And so it is, it is wise that when hardship comes upon us or affliction comes upon us, that we do healthy reflection on our conduct in life and result that results in appropriate repentance. Meaning, we ask ourselves, do I have any sin in my life that is just obviously in rebellion to God? Not do I have something that I'm not, that, that secretly God's not happy with, but he's not telling me what it is and I can't figure out what it is, but obviously these bad things happen to me because I did something wrong because I cut off my prayer time by five minutes and so God is, you know, gave me a flat tire. You know, like, that's not what we're supposed to do, Okay. This is not to encourage spiritual paranoia, but a healthy, evalu a healthy evaluation of ourselves. Because sometimes God will use pain to get our attention. And sometimes affliction comes in because we simply live in a fallen world and we're following in the path of Christ. And we are called to bear under suffering uh, by leaning upon everything we have upon the Lord as he draws us nearer unto himself. So, so we have to navigate that. Uh, but here God is getting his people's attention by way of pain. And if they are like the psalmist, they have been awakened to that. And now they are praying to God to remove their afflictions, particularly because they're painful, but even more because they are signs of God's displeasure. They're saying, please remove it from us. Why? Because they are signs of your displeasure and we cannot bear to have that because we love you. And so the psalmist rightly prays for the replacement of the signs of God's displeasure with the manifestation, this is the third thing that Matthew Henry says, with the manifestation of God's goodwill towards his people. Blessing, comfort, consolation. Like the sun that pours out that light after a flooding rain. You know, there's something beautiful about the crisp sunlight that comes in after a heavy rain. 
It's like he's praying for God to, to, to illuminate uh, his people, to bring the, the warmth of his smile that would replace the darkness of his frown. And finally, um, Matthew Henry says, he is praying that God would appear to his people graciously for them and gloriously for himself. He is praying, as we see the psalmist through those rhetorical questions that he's asking, praying for joy. He's praying for God to manifest his covenant love and salvation, which itself is the very stuff of restoration. And so what we can say about restoration, we can call it revival, we can call it renewal, uh, what we can say about it is that it is, in, in one sense, we could say it is a reckoning of repentance in hope. It is a reckoning of repentance in hope. Restoration, the prayer for it, must reckon with our sin as individuals and as the people of God. And far too many churches can fall into the trap of praying for revival so that the lost sinners out there can be brought in here and be good Christians like us. But this prayer for renewal and restoration for the church, uh, it's, it's like the psalmist, it's the believers who have gone astray, if you're going by Psalm 85. It's the church that's gone wrong. It's the prayer of the churches in the, in, in, in books, in the book of Revelation who, like Ephesus, have lost their love and grown harsh and cold in their dead intellectual orthodoxy. It's the prayer of the church in Thessalonica who, uh, who, uh, who having, have sacrificed the truth of God's word for the sake of loving kindness. It is the prayer of the church that thinks it's alive but is practically dead and actually reduced to embers. It is the prayer of the church that is lukewarm but, but, but materially wealthy, waiting to be vomited out by the mouth of God. This prayer is a prayer that reckons with our sin as God's people, not as those outside, but as God's people, as the church. It is a prayer that reckons with his past mercies, asking God to apply his mercy once more, not because of the good that is in us, but because of his gracious covenantal love. It is a prayer for us today. That God would turn us again to him, but with the expectation that he will, because he is the God who called light out of darkness, the God who brings life out of death, the God who brings joy out of gloom. So that's what the restoration of prayer looks like. But now let's consider what it looks like when restoration of prayers are answered. What does that look like? Well, there are two things that the psalmist highlights that what happens when the Lord answers prayers for restoration. First, in verses 8 through 9, God speaks to his people. He speaks to his people. First, um, God speaks to his people, and he, and he, uh, but what will he say when he speaks? What will he speak? What word will come from him? Will, it, will he speak to his people in wrath? Because he could do that. No, the psalmist says. The psalmist's confidence is that for those who repent, for those who fear, for those who revere their God, they will hear their God speak peace to them, not wrath. 
When God speaks to his repentant people, he is compassionate and merciful. We see it again and again in the Old Testament where God is in the midst of executing. He's right in the middle of the, of the, angel, of the angel bringing that sword of judgment against his own people. And his people repent. And what does God do? He stops him. And he cuts it short. Why? Because he says, I can't help it. My heart burns in me to be compassionate to my covenant people. God's heart is bent towards mercy to his people. But note the word of caution in verse 8, that, that the people, though God is merciful, must also be vigilant not to fall back into the same sins, the same folly again. God is merciful, but his mercy ought not to lead us to sin more, as Paul says, may it never be. But rather, let, us, let his mercy enable us to press on towards diligence, holy obedience, and vigilance against sin. But the main point here is that for his people, for his saints, God will always speak peace to his people when they repent. And so it'll let us take to heart the comforting truth that salvation is near to all who will fear God. This encourages us that no matter what we've done, no matter how far we have fallen, how wrong we have become, God is ready to forgive us. He is ready to speak peace to us. He is ready to cover our sins, to turn us back to himself again. This is what we see. When prayers of restoration are answered, unbelievers come to faith. Wayward Christians turn to God. God's people repent and trust in him. And secondly, in restoration, we see God's glorious grace revealed. In verses 10 through 13. And there's this paradoxical nature to this restoration that he's giving us here it's it's communicating this this pairing of things in verse 10 that just normally don't go together covenant love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace kiss each other well there's a turn of phrase this unlikely pairing is brought together by one thing because normally the righteousness of god and the peace of god don't meet together unless you say there's peace after god pours out his righteous wrath Right? But normally those things don't come together. But what brings them together in a way that blesses his people who have been rebellious? His mercy. His merciful covenant love. It is the mercy of God that loves without compromising the truth. It is the mercy of God that extends peace without compromising his righteousness. And further, we're given the fruit of this restoration. The mercy of God causes faithfulness to spring from the ground like seed that has come to harvest. Righteousness looks down from the sky without, uh, without harming anything, but illuminates the land. In effect, the psalmist says that Yahweh will give what is good and the land will yield the blessing from heaven. The path of righteousness is laid before his people and the way is clear, even if that way is narrow and hard. The restoration of God, again, we've been saying this, but the restoration of God cannot be done by a, a bare white-knuckled conviction. It, 
can only be accomplished through the restoring grace of God that penetrates the hearts of his people and turns us back to him. And this is why we have to say that restoration ultimately flows from the gospel. Restoration, revival, renewal on the church level, on the level of the individual Christian, flows from the gospel itself. There is no doubt in my mind that verse 10 points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where else do the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh meet except in the costly sacrifice of his blessed son? Is there a greater place that we can point to that righteousness and peace kiss each other than the cross of Jesus Christ? The place where the righteous wrath of God for our sin was poured out that Christ would indeed become our righteousness and that we would have peace with God. It is from the gospel of grace that faithfulness flows in the Christian life. Because it is by the grace of God and Jesus that we are turned from sin, that we forsake our evil ways, and that we turn to God in faith. It is only in Jesus that God gives us our eternal good in the kingdom of God. Jesus himself, the scriptures say, is our righteousness. And he is our path. He is the way. If restoration, as we said at the beginning, requires the satisfaction of wrath and the covering over of our sins, then Jesus is that. He is the covering of our sin. He is the satisfaction of the wrath of God, that word that is called propitiation. That word that means that all the wrath of God for your sin has been used up, been poured out. Jesus. My favorite illustration, I've shared it many times from the pulpit, is, is that, that cup of wrath that has your name on it, filled to the brim because of your sin and mine. Jesus took it and he drank it. He drank it down to the last drop. You know, we're talking about the sufferings of Christ this morning, the Christ on the cross this morning, and there is a natural revulsion where we say, we know what's in that cup, and Jesus, you above all people, should not drink out of that cup, right? I live in a house with six kids, man. There's times where you do not, don't drink out of that cup, all right? So-and-so is sick, they have been sick, and they're drinking out of everybody's cup. Is there an illness that makes a child, like, have to, like, I must go drink out of everyone's cups because, there's, because I am sick, and I must spread this around to all? I don't know. Apparently, my kids get it. So, but, but we say, but I know what's in that cup. And Jesus says, I know what's in that cup better than you do. And I'm going to drink it. And he drinks it down to the last drop. There is nothing left in the cup. And then not only that, he takes the pitcher of blessing and righteousness. He fills it until, as David says in Psalm 23, your cup overflows. That's the gospel. That's the restoration, the restoring grace of God. So 
renewal, restoration, revival. Whatever name you're going to give it, it is always a spirit-born work of God's sovereign mercy. The results cannot be manufactured or manipulated by us through our methods or our calendars. Rather, the work of restoration for the church, can the only thing that we can truly do for it is to pray. Is to pray. And that prayer must account for our sin. It must start with us and our need for mercy. And then move out to the sinners and the fallen and the lost that are, in, that are in our path, that are in our lives. But it is always a prayer that is born of confidence rooted in God's past mercy that looks for God to speak and to speak in a, in a particular way that God would reveal himself in his mercy through the good news of the gospel and to bring us, to bring his church into a place of blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. And Lord, we do pray, Father, that you would indeed always bring, Father, even now, your restoring grace to our midst. For there are parts of our hearts, parts of our lives that would lead us astray. There are footholds that we have certainly given way to the devil and to the flesh. Certain sins that we have uh, justified, that we have, we have papered over. Rot that needs to be uh, uh, uprooted and removed. And so, Father, we pray that you would bring that before our eyes. That we may, with fresh repentance, come to you. Because of what you have done for your people in the past, going all the way back to the very first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, where you promised to bring restoration, to undo the sin that they had done, and to bring greater glory. And how you come to your people again and again and again when they have fallen and sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you have brought your restoring, reviving grace to your people. Father, we pray you would bring it to us now. Bring it to us. Bring it to our hearts, Father. Expose to us the areas of our pride. Expose to the areas of, of our spiritual laziness. Expose, us to, expose the worldliness of our hearts. Bring it before our eyes that we may repent of it. Repent of every grievous way that is in our lives, that we may walk in your everlasting way, but only by your word, only by your spirit and the grace you give, Father. We are not strong enough, but you are. Your spirit is. Your gospel is. And so, Father, may you continually reveal yourself to us in Christ, renew us in Christ. And, Lord, we pray that you would lead us individually and as a church and, to, and even as the, as the people of God in this area, Lord, the, the gospel-believing churches in the area, even the non-gospel-believing churches in the area, may you bring renewal there that your name would be proclaimed, that sinners would come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that your people would be strengthened and renewed in the hope of the gospel. 
And we pray this all for the sake of Christ and in his name. Amen.